Good morning. This morning we are reading from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. This is the word of the Lord. If you're not familiar with this story and with Daniel, I encourage you later this week or today to finish reading it. I wanted Cynthia to stop reading there because I want to leave us hanging 
in the tension of an uncertain situation. Daniel's predicament and the king, the king worrying powerless, the king powerless all night over the fate of a good man. We're discussing the gospel and politics for three Sundays. That's a, just a little brief series we're looking at. How, uh, how to recover after an election year. And last Sunday we saw how the Bible calls Christians to honor all authority, but to worship God alone. Honor the government, but only be devoted in worship and love to your God. But I posed the question last week, and I said we'd address it in part today. How do you honor an oppressive regime? How do you honor an unjust system? How do you honor abusive people? Do you? The short answer, when you look at uh, biblical wisdom, is to say, yes, yeah, you do, but with a purpose. And that's really what today's talk is all about, with a purpose. Daniel's story shows us that, that believers in the God of the Bible are uniquely equipped to bless the society that they're in, the community that they're in, by their presence. Before we continue, I need to clarify something. God's promise to Solomon, to King Solomon, when the temple was dedicated back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God's promise to King Solomon, and, and you may have heard this many, many times if you're a Christian, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God's promise there to Solomon, although Christians mean well when they quote it, often misapply it for our circumstances today. That ancient promise was given specifically to Solomon and his nation, which was geopolitical Israel. It was a theocracy. It was a political government completely unique and like no other political government in all of human history. Now, some American Christians, and, and I think they mean well, but they misapply that promise to Solomon in ancient Israel by applying it to America today. And what happens sometimes is Christians in the United States think, and, and in many other countries, think and act like natives in our own land. And it's understandably so because in our society, our laws, our, our entire constitutional system is largely influenced by a Judeo Christian, biblically influenced uh, platform of ideas and principles going back centuries. And that's something that we should be thankful for. But as the Apostle Peter, many centuries after Daniel and Solomon, would say to Christians living in the Mediterranean world in Asia Minor from different nations, different ethnicities, different languages, would say to them together, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. When we think of God's words to ancient Solomon in 2 
Chronicles chapter 7, the correct application for us now is to realize that it is the church in America, not America, that needs to repent. The way, we applica- the way we apply as Christians in this society, that ancient promise is for the church primarily, not the nation, to repent. Now, how do we live in a society that is uh, consistently and more and more trading in biblical ethics for secular ethics? How do you live in a society where secularization is beginning to marginalize you and seems to be doing that more and more, and and it seems as signs uh, point to the fact that this will just continue? How do we live? Well, I think a more fitting model for how to live as God's witnesses can be found in Daniel's life, not in Solomon's life. We need to go back to Esther's story, not Abigail's story, for how to live. Christians must think more like exiles than natives in any political climate. Rather than thinking like a native in your own land, if you're a Christian here, you must begin to think like an exile in a foreign land. That's the biblical model. And as we talk today about Daniel's experience, we're going to talk about his situation and how he responded to a hostile culture. Then we're going to talk about our situation and how we can respond in our current setting. And finally, we're going to talk about God and how he responded to a hostile situation. Daniel's response, our response, God's response as a witness in a hostile situation. Now, Daniel's situation and how he responded to it in a hostile culture is a better model for Christians in America to follow and live by. Now, looking briefly at Daniel's account in Daniel chapter 6, we see that Daniel's distinguished political career, and I mean a lifetime, I'm talking almost seven decades in politics as a foreigner, living in Babylon. He was a Jew. He was living hundreds, you know, he had, been, he had been exiled to Babylon as a young man. He was part of the nobility. And he had a political career there. And he was among the best. So a distinguished career. And what we see at the end of his life as an old man, his distinguished career is sabotaged by envious co-workers. Now the satraps that are mentioned here are basically like, uh, like state governors. They're like the leaders of provinces so the, 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 the Medes and the Persians are ruling a vast geographical space on the planet at the time. And so you've got governors all over the place. Uh, uh, regional, regional leaders, those are the satraps. And then, and then what we see here is that over all those satraps, there was, there was basically a cabinet of three high officials, Daniel being one of them. And we, what we learn is that the king intends to appoint Daniel as kind of sort of a chief of staff above those three high officials who are basically overseeing all the governors in the empire. Right? So, so this is like a second-in-command type of a position. And so Daniel's powerful colleagues decide to cook up an October surprise in anticipation of his pending appointment to this role. But they can't do it. 
They can't dig up any dirt on Daniel. What we discover is that Daniel, in verses 3 and 4, Daniel had an excellent spirit in him, and he was faithful. They find nada on Daniel. Nothing. Daniel, throughout his political career, living as an exile in Babylon, had always rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He did this well in such a way that even after 60, 70 years, his reputation preceded him so that when a new government took over, they wanted to appoint him over it. And so his, his very powerful, manipulative co-workers, uh, they present an, an edict to the king, and, and this is basically the law that they whip up and they, they get it. He takes the bait. And the law is this, you see it in verse 7, whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Sounds a little absurd to us, but believe this is the sort of thing that, that went on in ancient times. Scholars believe that King Darius, it was less about wanting to be worshipped. That wouldn't have appealed to him. That's, that's not how their culture thought. They didn't, they didn't believe that, that the king was a deity like the Romans believed centuries later. What, what they think was appealing to Darius here is that it was an opportunity to test the loyalty of his new administration. Right? This, is, this, is a, this is a new empire, and he's leading it. Right? So this is a transition process, and what, what better of a way to test who's really for him and who's really against him. So he goes for it, but he's being used. This is a great example of the system having more power than the sovereign who's over the system. And it was a thing in that culture that once you put a law into motion, even the king himself could not reverse it. So his hands are really tied, and he's desperately trying to find a way to save Daniel, but he cannot. Now, uh, when, what, we, what we find is fascinating. Daniel's response to the new law was very carefully worded and structured in this account for posterity's sake. How Daniel responds is very important to understand. Scholars believe that whoever finally edited and put the book of Daniel together understood that for centuries, Jews would be persecuted and oppressed and that they were going to have to learn how to live under oppression. And so Daniel's witness and how it was recorded was critical to the people who first read this account, who were Jews, who were persecuted and oppressed one, uh, one governing authority after another until the time of Christ and afterward. This is Daniel's response in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in an upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. His response is really important because what we see in Daniel is that he doesn't organize a vocal campaign to keep prayer in the Babylonian schools. He doesn't organize a campaign to keep the Ten Commandments in the courts of the Babylonian uh, Persian now, uh, Persian king. What does he do? He continues in his righteous routine as he always had with the windows open. Daniel's response is to continue to serve his God with the windows open. This is Daniel not only rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but rendering unto God what is God's in such a way 
that other people notice. Right now, the people here who are noticing, they're out to get him. They're, conspi- they're spying on him. But nonetheless, Daniel continues to serve his God with the windows open. He lives his life with the windows open and people notice. And so what we see here in Daniel, and you can see it in the entire book of Daniel. You can see it in how Daniel responded to the edicts when he was a young man in government. You can see how his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to political and social pressure. The entire book of Daniel really became the model in the Bible for civil disobedience. When you want to understand civil disobedience from the Bible's perspective, you start really with Daniel. And so here is just a simple definition based on Daniel's witness. And then you see the New Testament authors living this out, picking up on it and writing about it. When a society's laws or social pressures force a direct compromise to one's calling to love God and love their neighbor, the believer continues in faithfulness to God's law. So Daniel's model has proven for centuries, even even to the last century, and even now in other places in the world, Daniel's model has proven to be the most effective method of Christian witness. Respectfully, humbly, live your life for God with the windows open. Some people will notice, and they'll be hostile. Some people will notice, and they will be blessed. Now you may be saying at this point, hold on, hold on, Daniel's culture and society was not familiar with and blessed by the Scriptures. Not like ours is. Everybody in Daniel's society didn't, didn't see manger scenes on the corners and, and the, the, the Judeo-Christian mindset wasn't embedded in, woven into the fabric of their culture for centuries before. You're right. But according to the authors of the New Testament, it doesn't matter. For us, it doesn't matter. Our situation and our response to... I'm not going to say we're in a hostile culture. Let's say an increasingly adversarial culture, okay? Our response to an adversarial culture as followers of Jesus Christ is under New Testament guidance now because we have so much more than Daniel to look at. Look, when the apostles, when Peter and the apostles, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 29, under pressure by the local authorities, when they said to the local authorities, we must obey God rather than men, they were talking to people who knew the Bible better than you and I. So see, the common thread from Daniel to Peter and Paul and the apostles and to you and to me is this. The system strategizes against your faith. That's the common thread. And so when you look back in this account to verse 5 in Daniel's account, what, what did, his, uh, what did, what did the, his enemies, the, cons- the co-conspirators, say to themselves about Daniel? They finally desperately came to the conclusion, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. A Christian's character 
and reputation should be so above reproach to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your relatives, to the people in your life, to the people in our society and in our community, so above reproach that your faith is the only noticeable thing that anybody can pick on. They should have to resort to your faith to criticize you, not your attitude, not your habits and your customs and your practices and your politics and your art and your hobbies and what you do with your money. They should not be able to touch any of that. Your witness to God should be so faithful. They should have to pick on your faith, on your religion, and the worldview that your faith gives you. Whether you're in Babylon or Rome or the Sanhedrin-led Jerusalem or Nazi-led Germany or the United States of America, your faithfulness, regardless of the outcome, that's why we didn't read the entire account today, which ends with good news. Regardless of the outcome, your faithfulness is your witness. We're not just talking about evangelism. Witness is a far broader category. Your faithfulness in an adversarial environment, is your witness. And this picks up on Jesus' theme of being salt and light, and Paul's theme of being the aroma of Jesus, which is going to be life to some people and death to others. Your faithfulness is your witness. So, think about American politics more from the perspective of an exile than a native. Exiles, not natives. This is critical. Like Daniel, Christians in every century and in every nation are called to make places that are not their home better because they're there. I re- you know, if, if you like to read and if you really want to understand what the Bible and, and even what, what our church's theology, which is Reformed theology, has to say about politics, I really, I highly recommend Amy Black's book, Five Views on the Church and Politics. And in there, because there are several contributors, uh, James K.A. Smith says this, the church is not the state. It's important to make that distinction. The church is not the state, but the church bears witness to the state and sends saints from its formative space to be a leavening organism in this political realm, hoping against hope to bend the kingdom of this world toward the kingdom of our God. And I think a beautiful way of summarizing what Smith says there is thinking about the musical Hamilton. You know, there's that one, one part in Hamilton where they look at each other and say, immigrants, we get the job done, right? In a sense, that's, that's what the Christian is. Wherever you are, you're an immigrant. You're bringing an alien perspective, an outside perspective from the kingdom of God, from the principles of the Sermon on the Mount into the space, into the neighborhood, into the society in which you live, bringing the aroma of Jesus Christ. And whether you're working in government, and some of the people in this church are, or whether you benefit from government, all of us do. Our model, our calling, was laid out for us by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. We read the first part of this passage as our, as our profession of faith. He says, as sojourners and exiles, that's what he calls us, exiles. As sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or non-believers, people who are not following your Jesus, 
Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which is basically what Daniel's co-workers were doing, as they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. American Christians, and I want to add this, I think this is important. American Christians, in light of what Peter is saying, in light of what has been happening for decades in our society and what probably will continue to happen, the American church has a wonderful gift and an opportunity to listen to and learn from the black church. Our brothers and sisters of color for centuries have experienced oppression and neglect, have been marginalized, have been misunderstood, have been misrepresented. And as the African-American theologian Carl Ellis in his wonderful book, Free at Last, The Gospel in the African-American Experience says, though slavery itself is nothing to rejoice about, the remarkable survival of our people through all the phases of our American experience should be a great encouragement. Our survival reflects God's active grace. Now, I want to learn from somebody like that. I want to learn from a people like that. And I think that all Christians, as all Christians, as we become more and more marginalized in our society, benefit to gain from the wealth of experiential wisdom and applied theology that the African-American church has lived for centuries. It's an opportunity, and you know, maybe that, maybe that is what's going to unify us. So think about politics more from the perspective of an exile than a native. When Christians throughout history, study history, when Christians throughout history live too native-like, when we get too native-like and we get too comfortable in our cultural and political setting, the church begins to exchange its witness for power and influence. And the Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman, who's written some really good books on how to understand Daniel, he wrote this, when the church has state backing, this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, when the church has state backing, it grows complacent, or even worse, coercive in its witness. Study has shown when the church gets an entree into the power structures of the state, it has hurt, not helped, the cause of the kingdom of God. And examples of this that you might be familiar with throughout history were the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who had the power in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. They traded in the witness of the people of God for their power and influence. Or in the Roman Empire, when, when, when Christianity became the empire's state religion, state-mandated religion after the Christian conversion of the Roman, the Roman Emperor Constantine. After that, the broad corruption of the papacy in medieval Europe. Closer to our own day, slavery and Jim Crow laws in our own society 
often supported by Christian churches. Once again, Carl Ellis calls this phenomenon in all cultures since Christianity has expanded throughout the centuries. Carl Ellis calls this idea Christianityism. Not Christianity, but a false representation of it. The best way to summarize what he means by Christianityism is when culture and politics and tradition and trends use Christian language and Christian religious practices and themes to promote unchristian ideas and practices. Now look, I am not encouraging any of us to be ungrateful for our nation and the society in which we live. I am thankful for our country. When I look at human history, <clears throat> and when I look at what's happening now in most of the world, I am grateful and privileged to be an American. But the Bible makes no category, offers no vision, no, no blueprint, no promise of any Christian nation. It's not there. So either you and I had better learn how to be faithful witnesses like Daniel, or we're going to become, or we're going to remain reluctant witnesses like Jonah. That's what we're dealing with. We can choose to be like Daniel, or we can choose to be like Jonah. The situation in which God put himself. Now I say put himself. See, Daniel found himself in that situation. You and I find ourselves as Christians in the current climate. However, God in Jesus Christ put himself into a situation where for 33 years he was surrounded by a hostile culture. And Jesus' response to that hostile setting was what we call the gospel, the good news of Christianity. Captured in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where we, are, where, where we learn that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. The world in which He created, the people that were called and set apart by Him did not know Him. And if you're struggling with anything that you've heard today, then you have not embraced this identity as your own. That your Lord, your Lord, Jesus Christ, came into His own creation and among His own people as an exile. He had a right as their king. He had a right over Caesar, over Pilate, over the Sanhedrin, over you, over me. He had a right to come into his own space as a native in his own space, and he gave it up, and he, and he welcomed himself. He came as an exile, and he wasn't received, and he wasn't welcomed, and he didn't have a home, and he didn't write any books, and no monuments were put up for him. He died a humiliating death as a pauper and a criminal. He was a faithful witness who submitted himself both to just and unjust politics. It was the unjust politics that got him killed. 
He was a faithful witness in all of that so that you and I could belong to a better country, as Hebrews chapter 11 calls it. A better country. Belong to it and long for that country more than we long for the one we're in. And like Daniel, Jesus emerged from a cave with a stone rolled over it with the seal of the authorities at the time, the Romans. Jesus entered this cave dead, unlike Daniel. But like Daniel, He emerged from it victorious, proving that no matter what is happening in the world, God and His kingdom will have His way. And when Jesus emerged alive from that tomb, He proved that that better country is real. That that better country is coming and invading human history. And that better country is yours. You become an heir of that coming country if you will give yourself to Jesus. If you will stay Jesus' faithful witnesses no matter what happens. And Jesus' witness to us, as Jesus' witness to all of humanity, is that God's people, though misunderstood, are transformational in a watching world. So Christians in any society, and for us, America, Christians must think more like exiles than natives. So when you hear those words, or you read those words in some article where someone's hot and messed up about what's happening in our society, and you see those words from 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and repent, I'll heal them. When you see those words, instead of thinking about America, think about the church in America. Think about yourself that we would put Jesus first. That we would put Jesus first. As natives of His heavenly country. And as His witnesses here now. And I'm going to close with the words that Rich Mullins once sang. Nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I'll call you my country, and I'll be lonely for my home. I wish that I can take you there with me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for our Savior, who was the true and perfect Daniel, who lived the sinless life, who submitted himself to abusive governing authorities, but worship You alone. In His name, help us to be His witnesses here and now. Father, we pray that You would heal us, that You would reform us, that You would perfect Your church. Those in this land who are called by Your name, Father, would You lead us toward repentance. And whether our neighbors and co-workers and relatives hate us or love us because of our faith and devotion to You, Father, would You work through us to be Your witnesses 
exiles in this land. And Father, fill us, as our forebearer C.S. Lewis said, fill us with such, such a humble, sober contempt for this life that we look forward to a better country. In the name of our Savior, Amen.